Welcome, everyone. My name is Michael S. Sieber. You're listening to Equal Chance to Be Unequal, my podcast about unlocking human potential through helping people disconnect from their purpose, uncover, and live their purpose. Good day, good people. Welcome to another episode of Equal Chance to Be Unequal. Today's guest is David A. Gerber. David is a partner, speaker, and coach with Novus Global, an executive coaching firm that works with Fortune 500 companies, professional athletes, and high-profile business leaders to develop lives, transform teams, and elevate companies to go beyond high performance. He's a long-term volunteer with DeFi Ventures, which we'll cover in today's dialogue, serves in a leadership role with the Rotary Club of Oakland, and has done significant international volunteer work with impoverished children and families. David loves to run marathons, has completed a full Ironman, which we were just talking about a second ago, and he's traveled to Africa, Central America, Asia, and Europe, and plans to go back to Africa at some point in the next year or so. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Of course, you're welcome. So when we think about you being a coach and thinking about the way that you go about helping other people, David... Tell me about a defining life moment when your personal mission first became known to you. There's a time when I, I realized I, I've, I've even since I was in high school, I've really enjoyed the the concept of mentoring in general. The idea that I would have something that would be of resource to somebody else was always a pretty profound thing for me. Um, not because of like, oh, I have something that somebody else needs, but it was always it was always fun to see, be able to transfer some leadership principle I'd learned to somebody else and then see them utilize it. Um, that was always just, just fascinating to me. Um, and so I, I'd always been into that kind of thing. And, and, but I never, ever occurred to me that it would be something that I could do as a profession or that had a significant, you know, significant return on investment for a client that you could do it, that it would be a paid kind of profession. There, there's a moment I was thinking about uh, when I specifically, I, I would say this, this mission was born in me. And it was uh, about a decade ago, about 10 years ago, I was 28 years old and I was going through the the first training I ever went through to become a coach. And, and at the time, I really didn't know what I was getting into. Um, it was it was a thing. I was pretty skeptical about the profession, the idea of it. It sounded kind of hokey, like, you know, become a life coach. What does that even mean? And so I was going through this training and and as a part of the training, they would, you know, you really, you just got your your butt kicked a lot. You know, they would, they would coach you, they would train you or whatever. And you know, I, I just was like spinning, right. Cause I hadn't really thought a lot about a lot of this stuff. And during one of the particular uh, points of the training, I remember I, it was a moment where I came up against all of my insecurities, like all of the thing, it was all being, I was in this room with a number of other people and all of my insecurities and, you know, lack of self-confidence and self-esteem was kind of being exposed. And I felt so I was feeling every bit of emotion I could ever imagine. And the, but the biggest one was like, I quit. Like that was like, that was the emotion it was like, I can't do this. I'm not made for this type of thing. I don't, I can't do this personal growth thing at a, at a, at a high enough level. I can't do this. I wanted to run, right. I wanted to quit. And I, and I remember I had this visualization where it was almost like the, um, if you remember the movie inception where the, you know, they're down to like the sixth or seventh layer or whatever it is. And they're kind of flying around and you could see all these buildings fall into, into the ocean. And I, this, what it felt like is I felt like my whole world was crumbling because I had this, this newfound dream that I could go do this coaching thing and I could impact people's lives. And it was all coming to a crashing halt, if you will. And, and somehow in that moment, I, I found a way to hold on just long enough to like, to, to get through it. So you get through that moment where you're, everything's exposed, all the insecurities, all the, the lack of confidence you knew you didn't have is now everybody else can see it. And, and somehow I held on and I, and I broke through that moment and kept going. And, and in some ways, the rest is history. And I've done that a number of times over the last decade. The part of that that made my personal mission come through to me was, wow, if, if I can uh, facilitate those moments for other people, where they can get to the end of themselves and get to the end of their what they think is their capability and go one step beyond that um, and experience the joy and the thrill and self-pride of that, that I had to find a way to do that. So that was, I would say that moment became really monumental for me. I think that's a perfect story, David. And thank you so much for sharing it. And I can 
even think back to similar scenarios and situations roughly when I was age 28. So I, maybe our stories aren't all that different. Yeah. When I had gone through um, getting an MBA at the Thunderbird School of Global Management and having a few of those nights where I knew that I was going to have to do something for a group presentation or working as an employee of the school to help first year students when they were doing some career development for themselves and really looking myself in the mirror and believing in my heart of hearts that I couldn't do it the same way that you felt around that point in time. And for whatever reason, just the universe kind of walked us both through those situations and gave us the the courage to keep moving forward and to say, gosh, this really doesn't feel great in the moment. But now that I've come through it, I now have that confidence. And I love what you said, David, about I want to be able to facilitate that feeling for others. When you felt that, what was it about wanting to make others feel that that was so intriguing to you? It's a great question. I, you know, I don't know. I, I've really uh, thought about that, but I, I definitely can uh, take a swing at expounding on it. So it was, it was almost this euphoric feeling because when when you're when you're standing there, and maybe people that are listening have been in those moments, right, where you give your first speech in high school or your first sales presentation or first board presentation or whatever it is you're you're asking for fundraising from a venture capitalist and and you're really taking this 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 swing at it and you you in some ways you know you're not qualified yet and the way to actually get to the next step is to step into the moment you're not qualified for that you don't know what you're doing and, uh, and, and take a swing at it. And then if you take enough swings, you, you get enough under your, under your belt to where you start to get it. And so for, for me, that moment, cause it, it, the best part about it is when I was going through this training is they videotape you. And so I actually have like video documentation of this moment happening where <laughs> at one moment I just stood there for a minute, just, un, just, just totally in a fog of what is going on. I'm so embarrassed. I knew I should have never tried this. I knew I should have never went at this. I should have just, you know, kept my cubicle job or whatever it was. And, and here I am branching out, trying to do something different and meaningful with my life. I knew I shouldn't have done this. And so, and, and so, so I'm in that moment and I, I can literally visualize myself like running out of the room, running down the hallway and, and frankly, crawl, you know, curling up like, you know, like a, like a child and just, and just weeping. Cause I just, want to do whatever reason. I just want to run away from that moment. And at the same time, simultaneously going, like having this 1% of belief that my life could matter more than it was. And I just, I, I held onto that, like with everything I had was just, I just, I, I'm like, I can't, like, I have to find a way to do this because I want to make a difference. I want to change the world. I want to change people's lives. And if, and if people can get, just get a, a whiff of that feeling, if I could facilitate that, and this is, you know, what I seek to do with the clients I have, uh, or even people I talk to, you know, just, you know, before they're a client, I want them to have that exhilarating feeling of my, my life can make such a big difference that my legacy will live on after I die. And to feel that, um, that tension between it's going to take everything you have, because it's not for the faint of heart. That's amazing. And for me, when I think about that, it's like, that really is your and my work is to find ways as much as we possibly can to create that feeling in others, because then it gives us that kind of feeling again, but then it also makes us really know unequivocally that what we're doing is having a significant impact on the world around us. Like we're contributing to a much larger cause, if you will. You and I both kind of had these experiences where kind of had to look ourselves deep down inside and say, you know what, this is something that wasn't the end of the world. It was a challenging scenario. We came through it. Now we want to do that with others. But when you think about kind of how that moves forward, it moves us down a different path of learning. And when we think about when you and I first talked in October of 2019, we talked about sometimes we have to recognize that we have a shadow self. There are things about ourselves that we really need to confront and deal with. And you and I as coaches, David, we, we understand that about ourselves and then we help others through it. When you and I talked in October of 2019, we talked about for you, there were periods of time where you had to deal with and anger or dealing with anger for yourself or that sometimes you might've had a temper. When you think about that, like, was there a specific coach or was there coaching that really helped you deal with your own anger? And what did that look like? How did that, how did that work itself out? Yeah. So there, there, there's a few things that come to mind that when, when the two or three concepts came together as, as one, 
if you will, they kind of stacked on top of each other or however you want to look at it. But there's a few different moments that really that tied that thread together. One of them was uh, what coaching helped me with so much was this idea that in a given moment, I have a choice. So I would say up until I got that idea, um, I have a choice to get angry. I have a choice to not get angry. I have a choice to, 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 to choose joy or gratitude rather than anger. Or I could just choose like to slow things down and really think through things and figure out, you know, why, why is it I'm angry right now? For me, th- it was so profound that in a moment I have a choice. And, and so, uh, because I'd never, I never thought about that before in the past, it was always, you know, if I had an emotional outburst, it was almost like I was at the whim of that outburst. I didn't have the choice to not do that. So that was the first thing was just this, this philosophical idea. You have a choice in a moment. Um, and then there was another point in time where, uh, there was a coach that said that anger always comes from fear, which is an interesting thing for me. And, and maybe it's not always, but like anger, let's say anger often comes from fear. Like there's what it caused me to do is in a moment where I was getting upset or angry about something, typically what I would do is I would, I would teach myself to pause and say, what is it I'm afraid of right now? And if I would, if I was willing to sit with that, cause at that moment, of course, it's like, when you're angry, you're like, not, you know, I'm not afraid of anything. It's not, you know, it's this stupid idiot driver or this thing or, you know, whatever it was, right. It's like, you want to get mad at something else rather than, than pause enough to say, what am I afraid of right now? And when I started to do that, there was a pattern that I started to see. And that pattern for me foundationally was my fear was that I didn't have what it took or, or that I was powerless when it came to my present and my future. I, I didn't find a lot of answers in my past when it came to my anger. I had a pretty good life. You know, I was, I was super blessed to have um, two just phenomenal parents who looked after me, cared for me, you know, the, the, like a really great home life. And so for me, even when I was going through a lot of this stuff, I was wondering like, where did this anger come from? And, and a lot of times the assumption is that it comes from the past. And I don't think that way anymore. I do think sometimes there's, there's things that happen, but what I realize is that um, anger comes from the way I'm thinking in a given moment. And, and it comes from a set of assumptions I have, and it comes from the paradigms I'm looking at. And so in that, in, in a specific moment, if I would, you know, slow down and say, you know, what am I afraid of? And then I realize, okay, I have these assumptions that I'm powerless about my present and my future. And for me, meaning powerless in terms of like, I cannot, I felt powerless in creating the life that I really wanted to create and the impact that I really wanted to create in the world and, and the income that I wanted to make. I felt powerless. I felt weak. I felt like I didn't have a spine. So when I thought about that, that was a huge thing for me. And then so uh, because then if you, if, if you realize, okay, so my anger is com- coming from this feeling of powerless. And if I still have a choice then I go, okay, so I don't have to feel powerless. And so then if I felt powerful, what would I do? What does power look like? And, and I don't mean power from a, I mean, from, I mean, power from a very authentic place, right? Like somebody who uses their power really, really well, like to create freedom for people rather than somebody who uses empower, you know, their power to do bad things or whatever. As I thought about that, it was it was just so fascinating to me that, okay, so I slow down and I notice those things and then it, it really helps me see, oh, now I get why I would be angry. Because if I do, if I am powerless, if I am stuck to like this impact, this income level, this level of self-growth, then that would, I could see that be frustrating. Uh, but if I knew that it, the future was full of possibilities and I could grow and I could create the impact, the income and the life that I wanted to create, that was really freeing for me. Uh, and then there's what, let me throw in one more thing that was, that was really helpful. And as I've shared this with people that have struggled with anger as well, this has been really helpful for them. I had another coach, yet another coach that said, um, she helped me see that my anger, um, was somewhat like an addiction. I, I was almost offended, like addiction. Like I'm not, I'm not an addict, <laughs> you know? And, and she, and, and she, she said, well, it's not, you're not like, well, she's like, well, yeah, you are an addict. And I was like, no, I'm not, you know, and so we went back and forth a little bit. And she said, well, look at this. It's like, she said, what do you, what happens when you get angry? Um, what do you, what do you say to yourself? What's, what thoughts are creating that anger? 
And so when I slowed it down enough, I realized, and I look back over the number of times I got angry in the last few weeks or whatever it was. And I realized when I got angry in those moments, when I paused to listen to what my thoughts were towards myself, there was a lot of self-insulting thoughts um, and usually full of expletives or whatever it is, but it's like, you idiot, you suck. You can't do this. Why would anybody ever, you know, pay you to coach them? I can't believe you're going to try this. You're an embarrassment. You know, it would be these pretty um, things that like you would never say to somebody else, but you would say, I would say them to myself. And then she said, and okay, and how does that feel? And I, and I, and I realized that I actually get a sort of like a high from that. Like I get this like buzz where you just, you're like, you feel almost powerful in a moment, even though you're quite weak at that moment. And, and, and I realized, oh, wow, it is like an addiction in that I get this, probably get some sort of chemical hit in my brain when I feel that like running through my veins, like, oh yeah, like, you know, whatever it is. And, and how that was helpful for me was I just was able to be able to like kind of the concept of like triggers or whatever, but I was, I was able to notice that there was this magnetic draw to, uh, to beat myself up. And so, and then I, once I would feel that, I would, I was able to then again, back to the first point of like, I have a choice. I was able to say, I have a choice right now to insult myself or I have a choice to do something. I have a chance to upgrade that. And I could say to myself, David, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud that you even paused in this moment rather than insulting yourself, you paused. And now you can say something like that you would say to a friend, like, Hey, you're awesome, man. I really love you. I really love your friendship or whatever it is. And I started to do that and little by little by little, it started to really dramatically shift the amount of anger I would experience, you know, but to be, you know, full truth, it's like, I still experience those moments. It's like work for me, it's like working out. It's, it's not one and done. I think I, at one point I thought like, oh, I'll like, I'll figure this anger thing out and then it'll snap my fingers. It'll be gone. And I've learned it to be more like working out and eating well. It's like, it's, 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 it's something that takes maintenance. I can't work out for 10 hours one day and then I'm good for three months. It's you work out three times a week for an hour or whatever it is, and and you stay in good shape that way. The metaphors that you're using and talking about, uh, David, are tremendous. And I had never really thought about that anger often comes from fear or that anger could be like an addiction. But when you mentioned specifically that there was almost like a a dopamine hit or some sort of a high that came from the negative self-talk or putting yourself into that power position, that really made it make sense to me. And there is a Tony Robbins often talks about a couple of questions that he asks his clients uh, for those folks who did have more challenging childhoods. And David, it sounds like yours was a little bit cleaner than this. But for those listening, if you happen to have a childhood that was a little bit rougher, Tony Robbins always asks two questions. And the first one is, which of your parents did you most desire love from, but you didn't receive? And then the second one is, is that back then in those days, you know, what did you have to do to receive love from that parent? And when you really sit down and think about those things, if you had a tougher childhood, then you're looking at it and saying, okay, gosh, I'm defaulting to a specific behavior because that's what I used to have to do in order to receive self-love, self-care, power, love, or consideration from another person. And that's a powerful stance to take. Now, when we look at it through the lens that David is talking about, which is if we have a little bit of a cleaner or a smoother childhood or teenage years, I'm a fan of believing that all humans come to earth with a specific curriculum of things they need to learn. And perhaps David's is dealing with a little bit around self-control or anger issues or something like that. And that now through his coaching, he gets to teach a lot of other people processes that they can then help themselves get back to a place of balance. And I think that's amazing. I, I don't know that entirely to be true for those folks that are listening, if it's kind of the Tony Robbins approach or if it's a if it's David's approach or how do we find that middle ground for those that are listening, but, but keep an eye on kind of like those two strategies. And so I, I think often about childhood and kind of going back to, to those years. And so for you, David, when you look back and you say, gosh, knowing what I know now, is there a piece of advice or multiple pieces of advice that you would offer like the six-year-old version of yourself? Definitely. And and this was actually one of the, one of the tougher questions that to think through is like, what, what, what are the things I would say to, you know, to that version of myself. And, um, I remember actually was doing a, a visualization about a year ago and part of the visualization, uh, and I actually will do this with clients now. And it's surprisingly, uh, well-received like my clients, 
even people in their fifties and sixties who are really successful individuals, if you will, uh, you know, uh, you know, according to whatever measurement we've got, but they're, they're very financially successful, let's say, and they've got lots of accolades when they go through this visualization where they, um, you know, almost like imagine yourself, uh, you know, hanging out at the park at your current stage of life. And then imagine watching a six-year-old version of yourself play on the swings, play on the monkey bars, play on the, come down the slide. Um, and then the visualization goes on and says, okay, imagine your six-year-old self runs over to you and just jumps into your arms and you, and you pick up the six-year-old version of yourself and, and you have this moment where you look into each other's eyes and your six-year-old like puts his hand out or her hand out and, and puts it on your cheek. And, and you have this moment and you, you kind of get to have this back and forth interaction. And, and this visualization that happened is one time a year ago is stuck with me. And again, I do it with a lot of my clients now. And I'll ask them sometimes, what would you say to your six-year-old self? And what would your six-year-old self say to you? And, and man, it's been, it's been really profound for me. And so, so for me, the thing that, 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 that came to, uh, to the forefront for me was this communication of, uh, to my six-year-old self, uh, uh, Hey, Hey, young David, uh, you are a person as well. Right. So, cause I, I grew up learning, you know, to, to love people and care for them and, and, and that type of thing. And so, but I never learned what it was like to intentionally care for and love yourself. And, and it didn't have to be a thing that was like self-centered or navel gazing or anything like that. It was just the idea that you're a person too. Right. And, and we have this relationship with ourselves, And so when, you know, for people that are married or have a significant other or even friends or whatever it is, it's like, you, you know, you think about getting gifts for that person or spending time with that person or going on a date or uh, whatever it is, but rarely do we do that with ourselves and, and think about it that way of what have I actually done to love and serve myself in a way that's not, uh, you know, again, navel gazing or overly self-centered, but it's a way of being healthy. And so there, there was, there was that concept and, and which, which then kind of leads me to, you know, this whole other idea of, of mindfulness, um, and, and meditation and that type of stuff. You know, I've been married for, uh, nine and a half years to this amazing, amazing woman. And, uh, and, and, you know, we'll go out and we'll have dinner together. Right. And, and, and so I'll say to people, when's the last time you had dinner with yourself, <laughs> you know, and, um, unless they're a traveling business person or whatever, that doesn't happen very often. And, and so, uh, so for me, what, what mindfulness med meditation ended up being was me hanging out with myself, uh, you know, depending on where people are spiritually, it's like me hanging out with God or however you want to want to say it. But it's like, it was me a chance to just go hang out with myself. And, and, and I really struggled with, with mindfulness meditation early on, but when I framed it as spending time with myself and just thinking about what I'm thinking about and just doing that type of thing, it, it became really, really helpful. So I probably would tell my six-year-old self, uh, you're a person too, and learn how to learn how to spend time with yourself and sort through things. And, and then back to the, the, the question about the anger, it's like, you have a choice in any given moment. And I, cause I didn't learn that till I was like 28 I, I, or maybe even later, I didn't realize that I had a choice of how, how to respond to situations. And I would tell my six-year-old self that. You are ahead of your time, David. <laughs> and I, mean, I mean that in the, 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 the most beautiful way, because when we, we know that there are yogis and there are Tibetan monks and mother Teresa and Gandhi, there, there are individuals around the world who understand the value of stillness or being quiet. The issue is, and I think what David is describing and uh, does very well for himself and for his clients is, is that he takes those same kind of ideas, but but uses them in a more business context or more business sense. And to say, we can be better at business if we make time for meditation or prayer or stillness or whatever you choose to call it. And the more that we do that, the more self-awareness we have, the more self-love we build the, the more times we take ourselves out for dinner, like David talking about taking his wife out for dinner. And I think there's a lot of important value in that. And I'll be transparent with the listeners that that's a big focus for me in 2020. I had a number of friends at the end of 2019 who said that I should do a course in miracles. And it was a book published decades ago. It's um, ACIM.org if you're interested in learning more about it. But it's literally a daily practice that you can do for 365 days to get to that deeper point of self-knowledge. For me, it's a new experience because I'm like David. I constantly want to go, 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 go and do things and help people. 
And I often will not do the self-service that David's talking about or that David has learned to do because there is really significant value in doing it to make sure that you can show up best for those people around you. Do you agree, David? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, I think it's, if I'm healthy, I'm, I'm of more resource um, to other people. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, I would totally agree with what you're yeah, saying. So a, for everybody listening, maybe not only reach out to Dave and we'll talk about his contact information when we're getting uh, close to the end, but, but think about that, the visualization that he was describing and how could you have that, you know, ethereal interaction with your six-year-old self. And what were those things that you could kind of look back at the lessons that you've learned through your life and say, well, how might I tweak and adjust things moving forward to make sure that I show up best for myself and grow and develop the best that I can for myself, but then also make sure that I'm doing the best that I can for, for those around me. And I, I think it's tremendous, David, that you brought that to the table. And I'm hoping that those folks listening, uh, do something about that and do that for themselves to get to that deeper level of emotional intelligence. Yeah, of course. Of course. Now I mentioned at the beginning of our dialogue, David, that you get to help a lot of successful folks around the nation. But I also think that it's a really important story for you to tell about Defy Ventures and the work that you do there, because I think about people like you can help the world's most successful people, but there's also value in what are the things that people like David do to volunteer his or her time and to help some of those folks who uh, might be just a little bit disjointed from society. So if you can, David, talk about the work you've done in the California prisons with Defy Ventures and, and how it shaped you too. Uh, this is definitely one of my favorite things to, to speak about is, uh, cause if you, if you're ever around me for more than an hour or two, you'll probably hear about it. But so for me, it's, there's always this component of giving back as well to the community and with, with the five ventures. So essentially it's an organization and they've got a few different locations throughout the U S where they go into prisons and it, it kind of as a framework, uh, they, they spend about seven or eight months with a particular cohort in the prisons. Uh, that or I would say correctional facilities where they teach a curriculum and it's all self-selected. So the, 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 the folks in prison have to choose to be in the program. So it's not a forced thing. And they, they go from basically zero to developing uh, a business plan um, for a, for a business that they could start when they get out of, out of, out of prison. They, uh, they, they take them through a lot of the soft skills, a lot of the hard skills, um, and then it all culminates on, a, on the final day is where they actually do like a kind of a shark tank type of business presentation where they, they have three minutes to pitch their business idea to uh, a group of volunteers that come in. And you wouldn't believe the, the progress that people make from day one until, you know, seven, eight months in. Um, and then there's also a day in the middle of there about three months in where they take a group of volunteers uh, as well. And they do more, they do coaching on their resume. They do coaching on their, uh, their personal statement, uh, things like that. So, so I've been able to go in on a number of those days where we go in and we volunteer. And, and so if, if you're listening to this, um, if there's a Defy chapter near you anywhere, highly recommend it, go take your teams, go, um, experience this because there's, there's one thing that's definitely sure is I have received significantly more than I give when I go on these days. Some of my favorite days of the year, um, and I always come home somewhat exhausted, but absolutely refreshed at the same time because of what I see. So the, um, oh gosh, let me, so, so there's a, there's a couple of things, a couple of things that stand out over the last couple of years that I've been doing this. And one of them is, is, uh, there's a time where the, the, they call them, uh, they, 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 they're big on language. So they call the folks in prison. They say, they call them entrepreneurs in training, um, or EITs for short, um, because they don't want to, they, they say they're not, um, they're not people, a lot of times people that are, that are in prison created a, you know, did a few, had a few poor decisions in their life. Uh, but it's not the, the sum identity of who they are, right? They're a father, they're a, they're a husband, they're a wife, they're a mother, they're a whatever, a son, a daughter, um, they're a human being. And, and we want to look at them that way. And so they want to, we want to define them by their future, not their past. And so they, they say entrepreneurs in training. So there's a point where um, volunteers and EITs get to share about how this, this day that they were, were in there impacted them. And one of the EITs one time said he hadn't had a visitor for 22 years. And then he said, for, this is the first day in 22 years, he said, where I didn't feel like I was in prison. Um, I felt like I wasn't wearing the prison blues that we were in California because I felt like a human being. And I can't tell you how much that mattered to me. 
So that was one of the moments that really stands out. Um, and then the other thing is there's an exercise that they do during the day. And I don't want to share too much about it because I don't want to ruin the experience. But it, it's an exercise that basically uh, brings you face to face with this idea that none of us, like any one of us that are going to volunteer uh, could be on the other side of the of the uh, the fence. We, like I could be in prison. It helps really bring you face to face with that. Of and it, and it can be pretty quite heavy as you can imagine because it's you could see like oh man if I made this decision or this decision or whatever it is or you know I've definitely texted and drove in the last year and or last you know whatever number of years which you know if I'm texting and driving and I hit somebody like I could go to prison right it's it's that we're not far that far apart and I think it humanizes people that are on the other side of the fence to say that person has hopes and dreams and aspirations and you know, whatever it is and wants to make a difference in the world, just like you and I do. Um, and it really drives that home and it, you know, and so it's like equal parts, heartbreaking and motivating to, um, how do we, how do we make sure as a society that we're honoring even people that have made poor decisions in their life and creating systems and ways for them to be able to eventually, hopefully go back into society and be a contributing member of society. The, the goal of Defy, obviously, is that people would start businesses when they get out. And so I've known guys that have gotten out that'll start the, the you know, I know a guy in San Francisco who started a bakery. Um, and it's really cool. And there's another guy in New York that started an app called Conbody that um, is a fitness app and it's doing quite, you know, done quite well. Um, and so that's really fun to see that stuff. Um, but the other thing I think that's really, really, really fun to see is just how much of the leadership and networking and social um, skills that they gain through being able to interact with volunteers that come in. And that's what they say the most thing it, it, when they, when they, when the guys get their feedback is how impactful that was. You, you couldn't have said it better, David. And I just love that you've invested the time into that and you've drawn so many connections and correlations to what we, you know, for, for those of us outside of a correctional facility, we might see, at a traditional startup accelerator or incubator, the fact that those also exist inside of a correctional facility is awesome to me. And when I look at it, you said a couple of things about receiving more than you've given. And I love that they use different nomenclature with them being an entrepreneur in training, because regardless of where a person is in his or her journey through life, humans are way more similar than they are dissimilar. And we do forget that in that even if someone did make a poor decision or choice short term, that doesn't mean that, you know, 95% of their other decisions and choices are bad. This is the thing that we have to do in society as we move to a place of decentralization and everybody has access to the same information and knowledge and society is going to evolve and shift. How do we help those folks who have righted their wrongs? How do we help bring them back into and assimilate and acculturate back into society in a, in a meaningful way? because they do have very significant value to add to the community. And they might be that next really significant star that has that skill set that were just, it just was suppressed for a period of time. So David, I really appreciate that you've invested time into helping them unlock their inner potential in that way and find a way to help them feel safe and in coming out into the community in a new way where they can add value in a way that they've always been meant to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, you've been doing this for a decade plus, whether it's helping Defy or if it's you know coaching folks through uh, Novus Global and through your own practice. Can you share an example or two about you know clients or a client that you've really watched him or her go through tremendous growth as a result of the things that you share with them? Yeah, there's a handful that come to mind. I'll, I'll try to pick one or two and and and, and you know just kind of share some of the highlights uh, of that because uh, it's it's one of those things that's just. I'm so honored that I get to do what I get to do and be in a space with people. And so with, with one of the clients that I, that I worked with, this was a couple of years ago, he wanted to, because uh, I really like, I love working towards tangible results with clients and then also getting a lot of the intangible results in the process as well. And, um, and so with this client, he, he had been running his own business for about five or six years and had been very successful but the, but the previous year to him working with me, uh, he had a, a rougher year, didn't go so well or whatever, and um, caused him to make the decision that he wanted to go back into, uh, you know, get a job with a, with a company. It was when we were, we were coaching, you know, there's a company they wanted to go work for. And, and, I, and in my mind, I'm like, you can't just tell that company you want to go work for them. 
it, but that was my cynical side of me, but I was like, yeah, let's do, you know, let's go for this. And so, and part of what I do is help people get really clear. And so I was like, okay, so, you know, and then we set commitments. And so he said, okay, this is a company I want to go work for. And, uh, and so he, he actually, uh, made a commitment in our coaching to, cause I kept pushing him. What do you want to do? What are you going to do? What action are you going to take? And he was, um, he was a little bit relenting to take the action. He just wanted to talk about it. He's like, we're going to take action. And so he ended up emailing this company and it's a household company and says, you know, says that he wants to uh, go and, and work for them and help them, you know, uh, essentially bring their video production services in-house rather than do, having to be a contractor. He ends up emailing them. For some reason they email back the next day. And because he had not only had to email them saying that, but he had emailed them basically a whole business model and basically telling them, here's how you would take your uh, video production services in-house. Here's a whole budget. Here's what, what you would need. So he decided to serve them. Um, you know, and so long story short, I coach him through three interviews of which he was super nervous about. So we did a lot of coaching around that, his mindset at what he was thinking about, what assumptions he was making or whatever it was and got him prepped for those. And then he, I still remember I was on a hike down in uh, central California near Big Sur and he calls me and he'd gotten the job <laughs> and I was thrilled for him. Cause I, you know, I really didn't, to be honest, I was like, I didn't know if this was possible. And then he said, he said, you won't believe this. He goes, I'm going to make five times what I made last year. <laughs> and I was like blown away. And he was so excited because he was just, he, he was ready. That was the season of life he was ready to go into. Uh, so yeah, so that, that, that's what happened with, with him. Um, and then I've, there's another quick, a couple other quick stories where there's a client that I was coaching in the Southeast region of the U S who was in real estate development. And because of the coaching and, and this client would say this, he went after, made a couple commitments that translated into the firm that he works for closing a deal on a hundred million dollar project. And I asked him, I said, well, what, you know, I said, what kind of, uh, what kind of profits does that bring to the company? And he said about 15 million. And I, I said, wow, that's amazing. And he said, yeah. And he goes, he goes, I, this absolutely would not have happened without the coaching. And I was like, are you sure? Like, this is what you do. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, this was over and above. And so I was, obviously was thrilled about that. So yeah, anyway, so th those are a couple of the clients and then, you know, but there's, there's, there's the intangible things too, which are really important to me. Right. So for me, it's not just about making money or getting the job you want or the promotion. It's, it's the way that this increases the fulfillment and satisfaction in people's lives. Um, and so there's a client in Hong Kong right now that I'm working for who's an executive and works in the banking industry. And um, some of our best conversations end up being about how he wants to be a better father and how he wants to be a better husband and um, get really clear on all, everything else going on in his world and how can he increase his efficiencies at work so he can spend more time at home. And so I love those things as well. So, uh, so we've worked on a lot of those things um, with him. And so how it all translates to, for me, being a holistic person where people are making the impact that they want, um, they're provided financially for, um, and they have a life that's um, commensurate to the fulfillment that they seek. It makes me think of what you said when we first kind of got started with regards to that defining moment for yourself, David, where once you had that kind of breakthrough, you wanted to figure out as many ways as possible to help others find that for themselves. And sometimes it happens inside of a correctional facility. Sometimes it happens with a person, you know, kind of selling him or herself, you know, in video production services, you know, sometimes it's having the courage to do something that ultimately lands a $100 million real estate deal. Or sometimes it's a, it's an already financially successful person saying, you know what, I've done this. This is great. I want to have more fulfillment through being a husband or a father. And I just, I really appreciate that about you, David, and that you're focused on, you want to make sure the tangible results exist because we happen to live on earth where money does matter. But also the thing that's going to matter more is the legacy that we end up leaving. And that comes from these intangible things. And that's, I think, where society is just really moving in general is more towards some of the things that I talked about is kind of the, the self-awareness, the emotional intelligence, being able to get a lot of stuff done through other people and influence. And all of that starts with that deep level of self-knowing to know, here's what I want to do. Here's the thing I'm going to focus on. Here's the effort that I'm going to give with these intended results. I just think, David, that you're guiding people in the right way to make those things happen. So kudos to you. Like I said, you know, we both are in this industry. It's just such a, just such an honor to be in those spaces with people, helping them create more meaning in their world. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
I certainly think about this uh, quite a bit because I try to fashion social media posts and e-newsletters and yeah. uh, podcast content. I think about you know patterns that I see in clients and what are they struggling with and how do I come up with a new thing to say or the right social media post or the right video or the right presentation that I give to their employee base? What's the thing that I need to say to get them through this? So I'm guessing that you're experiencing something that's roughly the same when it comes to your clients and regardless of where they're at on the globe, there are patterns in the things that you experience while interfacing with them. Could you give a couple of examples of what those patterns might be? Yeah, definitely. Um, the The patterns I'm seeing recently, I'm going to say in the last couple of years, as I've worked with, you know, be, began to work with more executives and, uh, you know, business owners, even some athletes, if you will. What I, what I find is uh, people, um, especially higher performers, whatever reason they tend to resist, I mean, it seems may seem simply profound or whatever, or, you know, too simple to be true, but uh, taking time to think, just sitting and, and thinking about their world from a, a 30,000 foot view. And, and for whatever reason, so there's many times where clients in between our sessions will create a commitment that they're going to sit, you know, take an hour without technology, and they're going to just sit and think about their world without distractions. And there's one question that I, I just love to ask people and love to just let them sit with this. And that's the question of, uh, what do I want in my life that I don't currently have? And, 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 and that can be, you know, when I'm talking with them, it could be something professional, it could be something personal, it could be something spiritual, whatever it is. Um, but I really want them to sit with that. What is it I want that I don't currently have? And if somebody's willing to do that, it's, it's really powerful because what happens is people end up when they don't do that, they just end up just going day to day to day to day to day. Um, and then they end up distracting themselves with just doing things without stopping to say, is my life becoming what I want it to become and getting really honest. And if it's not what things need to change. Uh, Cause some people go 30, 40 years down the road and then they kind of wake up and they're like, well, my life hasn't become what I wanted it to. And there's a, there's an article that came out recently, uh, not recently, but in the last number of years that, you know, was the five regrets of, of people that were dying. And this, this person, I think it was an Australian uh, gal that did some research on this and would ask, you know, do a survey of people that were on their deathbeds and said, what are your five biggest regrets? A lot of that stuff, you know, if they'd asked that question 50 years prior, they could have, you know, could have dealt with it, right? Just by slowing down and looking at things. That's one um, pattern I'm coming across. A second one I'm coming across is um, a, a deficit of curiosity. <laughs> uh, and I, I heard on a podcast recently, a guy said that his definition of humility is is this idea that I'm willing to entertain the concept that I'm not as smart as I think I am. And so I love that. I love walking into a room and saying, Hey, raising my hand, say, I'm not as smart as I think I am. I've got some ideas and some opinions, but I, I, I'll probably think a little bit differently tomorrow uh, than I do today. But, but this, the spirit in this attitude of curiosity of there's perspectives I don't have. And so when somebody gives them feedback, that's tough to handle. Does their brain go to, to being uh, defensive or does it go to like, wow, I haven't heard that before, or I haven't heard that from you. Like, I'm curious about what you have to say. And my, my, my common phrase is to somebody who's not receptive to feedback is I'll say, uh, if 1% of that feedback was true, would you want to know? If just 1%, most times people will say, well, well yeah, you know, and then once in a while people will say no. And then, you know, conversation's kind of over at that point. <laughs> um, so I would say those things. And then the last couple of patterns that I see are from that time to think that people take, people avoid getting clear on things. Um, and so, and then when there's a lack of clarity, what, what happens is um, people don't have a clear destination in mind. It'd be like, you know, you go to the airport to get a plane ticket and they say, where do you want to go? And you say, well, I want to go to the East coast. You know, that's not very clear because it, you know, there's, probably a hundred airports you could go to people resist getting clear. Um, and then what happens is people end up distracting themselves from, you know, just all kinds of things, whether it's social media, which is, you know, the common culprit or whatever, or Netflix, but it's all the other little things. It's the, the gaps in people's day where they distract themselves from the clarity and getting things done and making really powerful commitments. Um, and so I'd say that that's one. And then the last one would just be how much people avoid becoming at what I would say, like becoming a master of conflict. Um, and, and how do people, people avoid 
people avoid learning how to do conflict in a way that is that honors all parties involved, respects all parties involved, loves all parties involved, and treats everything with dignity. People avoid creating this powerful vision for how they do conflict uh, because people just have such a narrative about conflict that it's a bad thing. And, and so then they avoid it because they're so afraid of a number of things involved with it. And, uh, and so I say, those are the patterns that I see uh, happening with clients. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And when it comes to conflict, right, there's, you know, Myers-Briggs or Emergenetics or Predictive Index or DISC. And regardless of what your communication preference or style is, there's an associated conflict or negotiation style with any of those uh, preferences that you might have. But to David's point, even if you have a default mechanism or style through which you deal with conflict, there should always be that search for validation of what the other person's thinking, feeling, believing, searching for, so that there is a win-win resolution for compromise. And, and I think we really, as a society, struggle with that. Thankfully, I feel like we're moving to a place where that's becoming more obvious to people because there's so much conflict for how people distribute time or there's just a lot of conflict in general on earth. So people are now becoming much more aware that it actually inhibits business in ways that it might not have 20 years ago. And so now we have to have more processes put in place to make sure that people are feeling heard to be able to feel validated, accepted, whatever that word is for you, and then figure out a way to make sure that we're remaining productive and finding success, whatever that is within a business. So I see it becoming much more a part of the lexicon of traditional Western business. So I completely agree with David in that way. If people can put their initial interests a little bit off to the side and remain curious about why they think the way that they think or why another person believes what it is he or she does, we're going to start to find that center ground and start to find compromise far, far faster, I believe. And so I'm, I'm similar to David in that I agree that those four things are really significant patterns. And so I think we're moving to a place where we're becoming much more emotionally intelligent to be able to recognize our own patterns, recognize those around us and come up with structures and systems that allow for influence and that allow for progress and that allow for productivity. So it's interesting to kind of watch it all happen, at least from David and my seat, because we're third parties that can look at a person or look at an organization and say, gosh, if we developed these structures, we could mitigate some of the risk or some of the waste or some of the things that are not allowing this organization to grow or advance. Now it's just a matter of what David said a few minutes ago, which is getting people to take action. And when, when it comes to change, change is something that's really hard for the human brain to wrap its mind around. We don't like to do it naturally. So that makes folks like David and I, it makes our work a bit harder. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it, maybe yeah. this kind of leads into my next question, David, when we think about what makes people interesting, I'm, I'm really interested in why change is so hard for people. And that's actually something that I'm always interested in thinking about. And of course, you know, there are a lot of things that I find interesting in other people, but I want to hear from you. Like, what do you think, whether it's a client or whether it's somebody in your community, you know, what do you think makes a person interesting? Yeah. You know, it was funny. I, I was in Seattle a couple months ago and had this, this conversation with, a, with um, the CEO of our coaching firm. It was, it was really a fun thing to kick around because I, for some reason I had this, I, I was actually, the reason it was spurred is because I was, I was in Seattle for this uh, benefit concert that this amazing guy named Matteo Messina puts on as a fundraiser for the Seattle Children's Hospital. Uh, and I thought, man, I bet Mateo is really interesting, you know, and, 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 just, it, but it wasn't because he was some celebrity or some, you know, whatever it was, it was like this guy, you know, he's a well-known Hollywood composer and gives of his time and energy to put on this, uh, you know, put on this concert. And I, and, and, and even the way, so, and during the concert, he would have little, um, in between each song, he'd have these little things he would do. And, and it was fascinating. He'd, and he was just so authentic and he's just so like, here's who I am kind of thing. Right. And I thought that's it was really interesting. And, and then for some reason, as I was walking, we were walking to the car after the concert. I, I remember thinking um, about, you know, different celebrities. And, and I had this assumption, like, for instance, like I really, you know, I love Leonardo DiCaprio's acting. Right. And, and I was like, but you know, I don't know if he's interesting. He, I mean, maybe he is right. So this is nothing about him as an individual, just kind of as a, uh, a conceptual case study. Um, but the, there's people that we think like maybe it's, you know, famous athletes or, um, 
you know, whoever, and we assume that they're interesting. And I, and I kind of thought, well, I wonder if they are. And then I, then that led me to the question of like, what, what makes a person interesting? Like what makes me want to be able to sit next to somebody at a dinner party or talk to somebody at a, you know, an event or whatever. So I, I think about this. So the, the biggest thing for me is that I thought about was I love talking to people who have taken risks in their life um, because I want to know what they learn through their risks. Because if, if somebody's taking risks, usually to take risks, you've got to have some level of humility um, because, you, you, you know, you're, if you're going to put yourself beyond what you're comfortable with, um, it takes some, some level of humility. And so I love talking to people who have taken risks. I want to hear what they've learned through their risks. So, so that to me makes a person interesting, you know, and I thought about it, like, let's say there's a room full of people and there, you know, there, there could be somebody in the room who is fascinating, right? They've, they've traveled the world and they've done that. But if like, if all they wanted to do was talk about themselves and how awesome they were to me, that wouldn't be that interesting. But if they wanted to, to share stories in a way that invited the audience or the people in the room to see themselves in that story. That really was interesting. That that that's interesting to me, uh, because then it, it causes me to think. Well, I wonder if I took those risks and went after what I really found to be meaningful, I might be able to have a, a meaningful life as well. And so, uh, you know, a person who is evidently not about themselves, and anytime they share, you know, fascinating stories or whatever that causes people to go, oh, you know, whatever. Uh, but but it involves vulnerability. Um, they're, they're willing to talk about those things from like, you know, share their fears, share their insecurities in the process um, so that the rest of us in the room can go, oh, I felt that too. To me, that's what makes a person interesting at this point in my life. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll change later, but that's, what, that's where I'm at. Highly likely as you interface with more and more and more and more people, you, you yeah. will add to that. And I think that those two are great. And, and I was thinking as you were talking, I was like, gosh, well, what is it for me that I would be not only interested in learning, but then also would make me want to explore more about that person. And I wrote down, you know, how aligned is that individual with his or her life's mission? Like what percent of his or her day is spent living his or her life's mission? Like that would be interesting to me, especially if it's in a larger percentage. And to your point about the risk-taking, I, I like to know what a person learned through overcoming challenges. Cause all humans seem to have any number of challenges and what they learned through overcoming them, I think is really uh, cool to learn because we can definitely apply that to ourselves. And then and the last thing I wrote down was this idea of understanding how, what were those events along their journey that helped them get to that point of confidence? Because when you talked about a person who was humble enough or able to be vulnerable enough on stage to be able to invite others on a journey that they just went through. There's a lot to be said for that level of humility and or confidence. And I, I think that we're, that's kind of what we're all striving for in some way is to go through life with a sense of humility or with a sense of confidence to know that we do have a purpose and we can affect others' lives, even if we're still evolving changing and adjusting ourselves. Yeah, uh, definitely. And, and it's, that shared experience is what's just so, um, I don't know, they, I, I think, you know, I imagine people, you know, <laughs> sitting around and, and, and just having conversations, you know, more than, than they do. And I think that that's such a, seems like such a lost art to where we sit down, we're curious, we share perspectives, we ask people what they're learning, what have they learned from their life, whether it's risks or whatever it is, failures, successes. Um, and I, I love, I love the art of that type of conversation. You know, I don't remember what country this is in, but there is actually a country where the libraries allow you to check out a human <laughs> and you are then, you're allowed to then hear that human's oh, story. Wow. So of course, yeah, it's that, that to me is amazing. So it backs up your point, David, it's, you know, we can read books and we can read lots and lots of stories through books, but how cool is it to check out quote unquote, a human and then be able to sit there at some location where there's probably food and beverage and just hear his or her story, because there's so much that can be learned from that too. You know, when we talk about overcoming challenges and, and taking risks, it, it made me think a little bit about something you and I talked about in October, which was you doing a full Ironman. I think it was back in 2016 ish. Yep, yep. And you know that, and I'm a relatively fit person myself. Um, but I had never considered, you know, taking the risk of committing for months and months and months in advance to be able to complete an Ironman or the the physical things that would might happen. It, tell me a little bit, David, about the, you know, kind of this emotional, mental, physical risk that you took in deciding to do the Ironman 
and what you learned as a result of it. Yeah. It, you know, and I'm a, I, I chuckle as I start to tell the story, um, mostly cause it's, it, it was, it was a bit of an experiment for me and, uh, and I, and I really thoroughly enjoyed it and it was, you know, everything and more than I expected it to be. Uh, because I, from a background sense, I, I remember I played high school baseball and, uh, and most people know baseball runners don't, uh, sorry, baseball players don't run a lot. And so I remember but our coach would make us run 1.2 miles around this park as a team. And I remember how torturous it was. It, I just remember at the time it was so torturous, you know, and then if we, if we played poorly, he'd make us run two, which was 2.4 miles, which was just, you know, oh man, to the middle of the earth and back. Uh, so when I, when I started to, to run, I ended up doing a half marathon first. And then I got so excited that I could do it. Like, for me, it was like the, the idea of expanding your, your capacity. Cause for me back then in high school, when I was in much better shape, I would thought than I was, you know, in my twenties, the idea, the idea of, of, of running a half marathon sounded impossible. And so then when I did that though, something happened in my brain when my brain said, like literally it was just like had a conversation with myself going, well, I wonder what other things are I thought were impossible that I could do. And so then I got crazy the next week and signed up for a trail marathon. And, and then six months later went and ran this trail marathon. And, and I was just I, like, I got, I finished the race and like just broke down crying. Cause I was like, this is, I never thought I would do something like this. <laughs> uh, and then a couple years later, I did a one more trail marathon and then I, I wanted a little bit more of a stretch. And so I thought I'll do a half Ironman. And, um, and so, you know, for people that are listening, it's a 1.2 mile swim followed by a 56 mile bike and a half marathon run. So 13.1 miles. I signed up for that and I trained for that. And luckily ran into a person who was a, a, a triathlete coach, um, who kicked my butt. Um, and I'm so grateful for her. Um, she trained me and I did the half Ironman and, and I'm, I still remember the last couple of miles of the run. I thought, this is it. This is, I, this is all I need to do. A half Ironman. I'm never doing anything more. People who do more than this are absolutely nuts. Uh, and then I was getting um, a massage. The same gal that trained me, she also did sports massage. So she was doing a massage the next day. And, um, and she said to me, as I'm sitting there, she goes, you know, you're not an Ironman yet. And I was like, what? I did a half Ironman. <laughs> and she said, uh, yeah, don't, if you're hanging out with people, don't tell them you're an Ironman. Um, cause you're, you're not. And I, and so she kind of was taunting me cause she, this is, she's just this amazing person. Then she shows me her video of the first Ironman she ran. And, and when you cross the finish line, they say your name and they say, you are an Ironman. And I remember seeing that video and I go, oh my gosh, like I, I, I'm going to do an Ironman the next day or whatever. I start looking up races or whatever. And there was an Ironman that was four weeks away. <laughs> which is, if anybody that's done Ironman, this is a terrible idea. I just did a half Ironman, um, but it happens to be in, in Boulder, Colorado, which is near where my family lives. And I thought, well, I'm in, I'm in the best shape of my life right now in terms of endurance racing. So I, 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 this is the one I should go do. And so I texted my, my coach and I said, Hey, can I go do this? And she texts back laughing at me. Um, and she said, Hey, if you can go run 21 miles tomorrow, I think you could do it. Cause she's, she's like, you can physically do it. I don't know if you mentally can do it. So I go run 21 miles next day. Somehow I still can't believe I did that. And then, um, and then I signed up and I went and I went and ran it. So, so there's a couple of things that were huge. One is your, the current capacity that anybody that's listening to this, the, your current capacity that you think you have about anything is necessarily less than what you are actually capable of. Because as we grow, especially from like a leadership perspective or self growth perspective, confidence, whatever it is, um, your brain can't fathom much beyond what you can uh, imagine um, realistically. And so for me, you know, Iron Man was just, I mean, that was literally like me flying to the moon. I mean, it's just like nuts or whatever, you know, my own, my own free will. Right. And so, so that's one of the things is, is, is your capacity is way beyond what you currently think. Um, and you must be, you must allow yourself to be humble enough to realize that. And it will only become apparent as you keep stretching. So as I stretch from a half marathon to a full marathon, to a half Ironman, to a full, and you're capable of much more than you currently think. But there's, but there's a bigger point to this, um, for me. And, and it, and it was a moment that, because there's a thing for me, Michael, where 
uh, being an Iron Man is part of you become essentially part of an elite elite thing, right? My whole life, I had a narrative that I wasn't an elite person, and and call elite what you want. Let's do whatever it is, right? But I wasn't. For me, I I had this narrative my whole life that I was the B team, maybe the C team or whatever it was. But I I was never the A team. I was never um, the popular kid in high school um, or junior high. And for me, that was just, it was like my lot in life. I would never ascend to the top tier, if you will. Um, So I remember a couple of weeks after the race, uh, I was out for dinner with my uh, lovely wife and we're having this conversation and I was telling her about how I wanted to go. A friend of mine, a couple of weeks later, was going to race an Ironman in Mallorca, Spain. And I was like, I just like was like I want to go cheer him on. I feel like I'm a part of this 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 club now. I got to go cheer this guy on. And she was like, "You just want an excuse to go to Mallorca, Spain." And I was like, "Well, yeah, both." And but I but I had I, w- I was having this conundrum because I'm like I I was going back and forth on it, and I was like, I just don't understand why I can't decide. And and she said, "Well, I know why you can't decide." And I was like, "Why?" Because she's very perceptive, and and she said, "You haven't come to grips with the fact that you're an Iron Man yet." And I I started to tear up. And that's the moment I began to believe it. Um, but it's it's one of those funny things where it's like once you cross that finish line in under 17 hours, like you're an Ironman, right? Like there's no um, gray area. It's like one step you're not and one step you are, you're across the finish line. But my brain hadn't absorbed this idea that I um, that I could do something elite, that I could do something meaningful or whatever it was. And obviously it's Ironman, just a race. But it was a huge moment for me in my life where – I accepted that my life mattered, if you will, that I, that I could do elite things, whether it's an Ironman or running my own business or being a part of this amazing coaching firm I'm a part of, or making a difference in people's lives through coaching, like uh, that my life could really be elite in the sense of the, the impact that I could have. That took a while for my brain to accept. <laughs> um, and so that was, that was probably the biggest thing that, that how it shaped me. I think that that is a uh, a tremendous, maybe the word isn't metaphor, but to to say, you know, the, the narrative that might have existed in your mind about it being you being a member of the B team and having that climactic event that made you a part of the elite A team is a, a great way to say it. Because I know that there are many folks around the world that have those events where they find significant clarity or they prove to themselves that their current capacity is actually way more than they think it is. And many people I do believe to your point, David, they struggle with that. I want to to thank and, and honor you, David, for, for your time today, because I was looking at the notes that I've been writing as you've been speaking. And I really appreciated the comments that you made about the, that defining moment about breaking through and the, the, your desire to want to do that for other people. Or when we talked about, you know, temper uh, and anger uh, concerns, how do you remember, for those of you listening, how do you remember that in any given moment you do have choice and that you know using or defaulting to a specific emotion is really like an addiction? And to David's point about you almost get a high from that negative self-talk or that negative belief, there's ways to overcome that and reassign your belief patterns a much, much higher value. Or David's point about the visualization uh, that you could sit down and do and have an interaction with your six-year-old self and how that really helps us to see that the various points in our journey happen for a purpose and for a reason. And we can use those learnings to elevate ourselves from whatever point moving forward or the work that you do with defy ventures in the correctional facilities and really pulling out that humans, regardless of their current circumstance are way more similar than they are dissimilar in helping people to really feel and understand that. Or when you talked about some of the really cool client experiences and, and wins that you've had, I really appreciated, David, that you focused not only on what's the success that I can drive for them tangibly, but also for the things that you could help them grow emotionally or more intangibly, right? And that, that part is really important to kind of think about. Or you and I kind of went back and forth about patterns that we see in our clients. And I really appreciated that you talked about they might resist the time to think or just to just be still or they need to make sure that they're spending more time in curiosity or having more clarity in where it is that they're moving to. Those are really important points that people need to come up with structures or systems or time on their calendar to make sure that they don't make those same mistakes too. 
or what is it that does make a person interesting? Is it someone's capacity to take a risk or overcome challenges that, that David and I talked about? Or I'll wrap it up here, David, but you doing the work that you do now, I think is really critically important because if at any point in time you did believe yourself to be a part of the B team, you're clearly not part of the B team. You're clearly on the A team and you're helping a lot of other people around the globe become that same thing too. So thank you, David, for, for being you and doing the work that you do because it definitely matters and you're definitely impacting a lot of lives. Uh, well, thank you, Michael. And, and I, you know, just, it's been such a, such a pleasure to, to talk through this stuff. It's really fun to see what we can learn uh, in the process of conversation. You did mention before we started recording that you're going to be doing a TEDx talk on March 27th, 2020. So I want to make sure that the audience keeps an eye out for that. So just in general, David, where can people learn more about you or keep an eye on your work in the TED, TEDx talk? Yeah. So, so my, um, I have a website, uh, it's davidagerber.com. And so make sure you put the A between David and Gerber. Um, so davidagerber.com, my Instagram handles, David Gerber. And, uh, and I, I, I tweet once in a while, I, you know, um, but not, not so much. I mostly do Instagram or my website, um, where I collect some of my thoughts there on my blog. Um, but that's probably the best way, um, to find me. And then, um, my, uh, the, the website for our coaching firm is novus.global. And then, uh, if you want to email me, feel free to shoot me an email, David at novus.global, N-O-V-U-S dot, uh, global. Excellent. Thank you again, David, for your time today. And thank you to everybody who listened uh, to today's episode. I've really enjoyed not only learning more about David's story, but about definitely about the ways that he has helped uh, a number of people. And there are a number of strategies and, and resources and tactics and ideas that David shared that you could obviously very easily apply in your own life. So I'll make sure that uh, David's um, website and some of the other social media channels that he posts on are available in the show notes. And with that, I'll bring today's discussion to a close. Thank you again for listening. Go forth and be awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Equal Chance to Be Unequal. I'm Michael S. Siever. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and like, share, or comment on this podcast on michaelssiever.com. Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. Go forth and be awesome.